My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Joan Kuyek. Mining is big business, especially in Canada. About half of the world's mining companies are headquartered here, which in 2017 amounted to 1,364 companies holding $260 billion in assets, and they work in more than 100 countries. An interview in the Halifax Examiner quoted today's guest as saying, Mining, the extraction of copper, gold, and other metals, was one of the major reasons why Canada got settled in the first place. This was a colony that was there to extract, and our laws, our regulations, and policies are all shaped by facilitating extraction. End quote. As past episodes of Talking Radical Radio have discussed over the years, the mining sector has an awful record when it comes to the environment and human rights. Profit-driven resource extraction is a constant threat to indigenous peoples, sovereignty, and rights. And in an era of climate crisis, it's relevant that more than a quarter of global climate emissions can be traced to mining. And to be clear, traced not to fossil fuel extraction, but to extraction and primary processing of metals and other minerals. Joan Kuyek has been involved in grassroots activism and organizing since the 1960s. For five years, she worked as a community organizer in Kingston, Ontario. Then in 1970, she moved to Sudbury, a small city in Ontario's near north known for nickel mining. Through most of the three decades that she lived there, though she worked many different day jobs, Kuyuk was involved in organizing in one way or another. It was most often with women, and the exact form and focus varied, but it was all done in a community context in which the mines and the power of the companies loomed over everything. In the late 1970s, the miners waged and won an eight-month strike, and part of what made that victory possible was the organizing of women in the community through a group called Wives Supporting the Strike, which Kuyek chaired. Over her years living in Sudbury, Kuyek came to deeply appreciate the impacts of mining on people and the environment, and particularly on the indigenous communities in and around the city. Starting in the mid-1990s, people involved in three strands of struggle against Canadian mining companies started talking. Indigenous groups within Canada, prominently including the Innu Nation and its fight against the proposed mine at Voises Bay in Labrador, environmental groups opposed to mining projects in British Columbia and elsewhere, and international NGOs that had run up against Canadian mining companies doing destructive things in a bunch of different countries. Together, they founded an organization called Mining Watch to act as a resource in all of these different kinds of struggles. And they hired Kuyek who moved to Ottawa and served as the organization's first national coordinator from 1999 until 2008. Since then, she's done similar work on a freelance basis. Both with Mining Watch and on her own, this work has involved research and policy advocacy oriented primarily to supporting frontline communities and struggles on the ground. It often involves helping communities develop knowledge about how the industry and regulatory frameworks operate and how different tactics and approaches to struggle have worked in other places. Centrally, it involves doing everything in coalition and working hard to bring people facing similar things together to support and learn from each other. A few years ago, Kuyek decided that she wanted to share what she had learned over these many years of work in a different way, by writing a book. 
Unearthing Justice, How to Protect Your Community from the Mining Industry, was published by Between the Lines in September 2019. Unearthing Justice deals with various facets of how the industry works, from the actual mining process itself to things like regulation, finance, and taxation. It talks about the impacts of mining, its intimate relationship with colonization, what it does to the environment, its impacts on workers and communities, and Canada's predatory role on the global scene. And it provides practical lessons about organizing against mining projects, drawn from Kuyak's experience. I speak with Kuyak about her many years of grassroots involvement and about unearthing justice. I'm Joan Kuyak, and I've been a community organizer and researcher, I guess, for a long time now. And I wrote a book called Unearthing Justice, How to Protect Your Community from the Mining Industry, which is really about putting mining in its place in Canada. It and other forms of extraction have shaped this country and it's caused enormous damage to Indigenous people and the environment. And people have been fighting back against that in many, many ways ever since the country was founded. And I wanted to tell those stories and help people figure out what they could do when they're faced with those issues. I got involved in the, in the mid-60s. I was hired as a research assistant to the company of Young Canadians Organizing Committee, Canada's version of the Peace Corps when I graduated from university in 65. And they sent me out to talk to national voluntary organizations about what they thought young Canadians should be doing if they were given these volunteer opportunities. In the process of going around and talking to you know, the national YMCA and groups like that, I stumbled upon a number of really amazing adult educators who really believed in helping communities achieve the goals they set for themselves and thought that young Canadians should be learning how to do this. And then I ran into the Student Union for Peace Action, which was setting up projects in places around Canada to test out some of these ideas and basically fell in love with the movement. I ended up leaving the company of young Canadians and going to work on a community organizing project in Kingston, Ontario that fall, where the people in the community taught me what I needed to know. I worked on the Kingston Community Project with other people for almost five years. We were helping people organize around issues that were important to them. And it was just such an incredible education in how power works in this country and in how people work to fight back. In 1970, my then husband, Don Kuyak, and I moved to Sudbury. I worked at a variety of different jobs. Sudbury was a real experience. I mean, at that point, there were 30,000 young blue-collar workers who'd been hired because the mines were expanding. And we got involved organizing with housing. I got involved with the women's liberation movement. All the time having to work at the jobs I could find there. I worked at Zeller's and I worked at Bell Telephone. The conditions for women were terrible. It was a very, very patriarchal environment. The landscape was like Mordor in Lord of the Rings. It was devastated by the smelter fumes. And we, again, just kept learning. So my connection to mining for most of the time when I was in Sudbury, which is almost 30 years, was organizing with women, organizing when we'd have busts in the economy. I worked at a legal clinic for seven years where I had a lot of workers' compensation clients, a lot of people who were marginalized by the mining economy. We took on a number of housing struggles. So over the time I was in Sudbury, you learned a lot about how the mining industry worked. And in 78-79, there was a strike at INCO that ended up lasting eight months. And I was a part of a group at that time called Women Helping Women that had been doing women's organizing. 
And when the strike happened, we knew from previous research that we'd done that women tended to blame the union as much as the company when strikes happened because of their experience trying to fend off bill collectors and hold the family together and manage on whatever piddling strike pay they got. And so we saw it as our job in Women Helping Women to organize with the wives. We organized something called Wives Supporting Strike with Wives. The women who weren't married to minors didn't have a vote but could participate. So most of it was run by the wives themselves. But I chaired wives supporting the strike. I was a facilitator and was deeply, deeply embedded in seeing the power of the company firsthand. I mean, it was pretty frightening, actually. The workers won the strike. And then after that, the company tried to make up the money that it lost by laying off huge numbers of people and having a shutdown. And then we were faced with organizing mostly around housing and eviction issues in the community. And again, it was learning the role of the company in all this. So over time, I mean, we just were so conscious of the power of the industry to shape the discourse, to shape how the community functioned, and how it marginalized Indigenous people. By the 90s, I was working for the Swakamuk Native Friendship Center as a community worker. And the marginalization of the indigenous people whose land we were on was even more dramatic. So the time in Sudbury was an enormous immersion in the impact of mining. And so when I had an opportunity to apply to help start Mining Watch Canada, I leapt at it. I wasn't one of the initial founders. Mining Watch started April 1st, 1999, but there was almost two and a half years of organizing that went on before that. In the mid-90s, there were a number of tailings, spills, and massive accidents involving Canadian mining companies that created a lot of awareness about tailings impoundments. Tailings are the waste left over from crushing ore. Also, a lot of international NGOs were running up against Canadian mining companies, taking over peasant and traditional lands, having serious environmental problems, and so on. And at the same time in Canada, there was a lot of environmentalists trying to stop a mine called Windy Craggy in the Tashinshini watershed of BC and Alaska. And the Innu, they were fighting Boise's Bay at that time. So these three streams, the sort of indigenous battles that were led at that time by the Innu Nation, the international concerns about mining expansion, and then the environmental concerns in places like British Columbia and across the country as mining got more and more and more intrusive. And they came together and decided to do this work and ended up forming Mining Watch Canada. They advertised for an executive director. And I applied and got the job and moved to Ottawa to do it. And there was two other half-time people hired. From the beginning, I refused to be an executive director. I thought that was rather silly, considering that there was only two full-time equivalents. And I didn't want the power that went with it. Although I've got to say, by being the national coordinator instead, I ended up with most of the responsibility. We had a board that was made up, I think, of 10 people who were all engaged in different kinds of grassroots struggles, either in Canada or supporting organizations in other parts of the world. And they all came to this organization with dreams about all the things it was going to do. And as a staff, we had to come up with some plan that would try and satisfy those huge dreams they had for it. We held two conferences right at the beginning to sort of test our legitimacy, I guess. 
The first one, the Innu called, and they hired Mining Watch to organize the conference for them. And they invited to it all the indigenous groups that they had been working with in Canada around Voyages Bay. So we had a meeting in Ottawa where people came from all these First Nations and from Métis and Inuit organizations. And they set out the terms for Mining Watch. They said what they wanted us to do. And we did it, basically. And then we had a second conference that involved the international colleagues that our partners had. And what we did was we invited from North America only indigenous people engaged in mining issues because we felt they were the global south in Canada. And we invited people from the communities affected by Canadian mining companies in different parts of the world, along with one representative from an NGO that had worked with them so that they could come to this meeting. People came from Guyana, the Philippines, Suriname, Ghana, Indonesia. It was a really amazing collection of people. And they did the same thing. We went through a participatory process over three days, and they came up with what they wanted Mining Watch to do. And it was remarkably similar to what the Indigenous Peoples Conference had done. They wanted Mining Watch to support communities affected by mining with research and with information and with lobbying. They wanted us to affect our own government laws, policy, and regulation. And they wanted to chance to talk with each other, basically. So Mining Watch, we didn't do much original research, but what we did do was collect and do literature reviews, pull stuff together, simulate research in universities and colleges, and trying to put it in a form that people could use. We lobbied with them on policy matters, which meant researching what the law and policy was, because quite frankly, it wasn't all that easy to find out. And then we did what we could to support struggles in solidarity in other places, in Indigenous communities in Canada and in places that were affected by Canadian mining companies around the world. It was a huge order, but because we almost always worked in coalition, we'd find others to work with us. That was really, really helpful. So we could expand our reach by working in coalition and by stimulating others to take up Canadian mining company issues. And it was actually very effective. So we we did what we could. I mean, the fights are always taken by the people at the ground. And what an organization like Mining Watch does is, for one thing, keep a record of it. And secondly, to provide some research, some background, to provide some glue between different groups taking on similar struggles. So you were at Mining Watch from 1999 to 2008, and then you've been doing the same work on a consulting basis since then. And at some point along the line, you decided to write a book. Tell me about that decision and about the process of writing it. When I left Mining Watch, I got asked by Algoma University in the Sioux to teach a one-week course for their community economic and social development program explaining mining. So I pulled together a course with 10 segments that sort of did a 360-degree look at mining and its impacts and how people organize around it. And that became the basis for a course that I taught at Queen's with Justin Kanidis, who's a commercial lawyer in the law school, called Mining Law Policy and Communities. So a few years back, I was thinking I should really turn this into a book because I'm getting older. I've accumulated this information. I've written an awful lot of papers for Mining Watch and other places to help explain this to people. And it's important to get that out there because an awful lot of communities facing these things have no idea how the industry works. And the result is their strategies aren't very effective. 
often we lobby for the wrong things or it counted purposes, and they don't see the overall picture. So I use the course outline as the basis really for writing a book. When I decided to do it, I approached Between the Lines because they'd published a book I'd done a number of years before. They were enthusiastic about it. From the time I approached them till I finished, it was about two years. What kinds of things do you cover in the book? The first part of the book explains the mining process. It explains how the minerals are taken out of the ground, the difference between, you know, the product and the ore and the waste rock and the tailings and all the impacts of mining environmentally, because they are enormous. Mining is essentially a waste management industry, and the first part of the book makes that clear, that more than 100% of what's taken out of the ground is left behind, often in a state that's dangerous or toxic. The second part is about the cost. So it starts by talking about mining as being on the front lines of the colonial project and gives a number of stories of how mining disrupted and disorganized Indigenous communities across the country was able to intrude and then built its laws and regulations to protect its own interests. So as the colonial government was formed, it was formed to protect extractivism, whether it was industrial agriculture or fisheries or mining or fossil fuels. Then it talks about the social costs and a lot in that part about mining communities. People really want to connect with each other. So mining communities can be really tight-knit social structures, but they marginalize the very people who used to live there, the indigenous people. And so they tend to be quite racist. And then the next chapter in there is about working in mines and what happens to the workers. It's got a very, still has a very high industrial disease rate. You know, a number of people are injured, get, have long-term chronic conditions because of mining, although there's less of that now because it's more automated. Then it talks about the structure and financing of the industry. And that piece takes you into the markets and the investment and the financialization of the industry, how it's structured that way. People tell me that's actually really readable and understandable. It's the first time they've understood it in some cases. So I, that's helpful, I think. The fourth section is about law and regulation and includes a discussion of why taxation matters. The mining industry pays very, very, very little in tax. I mean, most of it incentivizes mining. It doesn't help us with reducing, reusing, recycling. It also talks about the externalities of mining, how most of the costs are externalized to the environment, to indigenous peoples and to workers, and how the way we structure our laws allows that to happen. And then the last section, which is the largest section, talks about fighting back and talks about how you can put mining in its place. I've organized that one in terms of trying to stop a mine before it starts, dealing with an operating mine, which is really, really hard because nobody wants to take on the mess that's there. And everybody has already become dependent on the job. So the industry has so much more power at that point that it's almost impossible to make many changes. Then it talks about closure and long-term care, which is a tragic story, but I think important for people to know because we're faced with abandoned and closed mines all the time. Then it looks at ways people can use the markets to fight back and ways that people try to organize to change law and policy. There's two chapters about Canada's role internationally. One that talks about what it's like and what we do internationally, which is pretty awful. We're a terrible predator. We export the Canadian brand everywhere. And the other chapter is in the fighting back section and talks about how people do solidarity. 
What are some key lessons for communities from the book or from your experience when it comes to organizing in response to mining projects? First thing, I guess, is to understand that most claims don't become a mine. Only one in 10,000 claims become a mine. So an awful lot of the chaos and misery that's created, the divisions that are created in communities over mining claims and early projects are over something that's never going to happen anyway. Most of these projects have a fatal flaw. They have something that means it won't ever become a mine. And the book talks about that. So it'll tell you maybe they can't get water. Maybe they can't get power. Maybe they're going to have trouble getting what they call the social license. That is, the people who are affected don't want it. It might be that investors won't invest in it because they see it as too risky. You know, maybe the ore isn't going to be rich enough to justify all the costs of getting it out of the ground. Maybe the project is being proposed someplace where the government is very, very upset about how little money they've been making from the mines on their land and they want to get a lot more. So these mines have fatal flaws and most of them, if you can find them, you can make the mine not happen. Once it's operating, there's a whole other set of issues. The problem is that by that point, there's all sorts of environmental damage and it's growing every day because mining is a continuous assault on the earth. So it just gets bigger every day. That's what it does. So your places where you can try and limit its damage are around permitting, health effects, worker organizing, the support of unions and education of people in unions becomes really important at that point. There's probably going to be some kind of health risk assessment that, like all of them, show no relationship to the mine. So often you need a lot of really good technical help to try and understand what's going on. The industry will really control the town in every way they can. So the fight back is quite different. And when they close down, then you've got to really be protecting yourself. You've got to make sure that there's enough resources to do whatever cleanup can be done, that people understand the long-term contamination issues, long-term information issues. So you're dealing with a whole other set of concerns at that point. And if you're trying to affect law and policy, then the only thing we really have going for us is huge numbers of people who are going to speak out. Frankly, that's where our power lies. And if there's enough of those, then a lot of investors will refuse to get involved because they don't want the reputational risk that goes with it, or they begin to understand that this isn't going to work. I strongly believe that we should be internalizing all the costs of mining, that the company should be having to foot the bill for everything it's doing. And if they had to do that, most of these mines would not be economic. They wouldn't happen. So the pressure to make it clear how much these things are costing us in terms of the environment and the health and governance is one of the big roles of people who are engaging in these battles and the role of national and regional groupings to amplify the voices of communities who are asking for these changes. And based on your extensive experience, what are the key handful of legal or regulatory changes that you would want to see in the Canadian context to support communities that are faced with destructive mining projects? First off, we need to be able to hold Canadian mining companies operating abroad accountable. We need legislation that lets us do that. There should be a withholding of any public funds to companies that transgress human rights and environmental norms. And we shouldn't be giving subsidies of any kind. The second thing is that we need to get rid of free entry. We need to make sure that companies have to have permission. We need free prior informed consent so that First Nations can say yes or no to mining on their traditional territory. And they can do it in an informed way, in a proper way. 
we need to understand that mining is a waste management industry, that we're going to be looking after the toxic waste from mining probably forever, and that that cost has to be internalized so that when we're evaluating a mining project, the full cost of taking care of those wastes forever has to be built in right from the very beginning. The money has to be upfront. Most mining projects can't go ahead if you do that. They don't have the money for it. And so it'll get rid of marginal projects, which is, I think, fairly important. We should probably not be having wet tailings. They should have to be paste backfill or dry stack. I actually argue in the book that we shouldn't be mining gold and diamonds and we shouldn't be mining coal and uranium. Gold and diamonds, because all the gold and diamonds we can ever use have already been mined and they've got completely artificially inflated value. And they're very, very destructive forms of mining. Uranium and coal, because the product itself is so dangerous. If we were doing a really good evaluation of what we need in a sustainable economy, it would not include mining those four things. What kinds of solidarity would be useful from people who don't live in frontline communities to support the struggles led by people who do? You know, even as a Canadian taxpayer, you're ripped off by this industry. They get, like the fossil fuel industry, unbelievable amounts of subsidy and incentive. They don't pay taxes. We don't have a healthcare system that works in Ontario, partly because the mining industry has never been paying its way. The people who control the mining industry have never been paying its way, I should be, because it's used to funnel money out of Ontario and away from the communities that need it. Valet in Sudbury, for example, doesn't have a cash security deposit against when it closes. They got a line on a subsidiary balance sheet for $657 million. That's it. So if they have a disaster tomorrow and one of their tailings dams breaks, we're not covered. It will wipe out part of the city of Sudbury and the government will end up picking it up because Dali will just make the subsidiary go bankrupt. I mean, it's quite shocking. The government picks up the costs of the environmental damage. They pick up a lot of the costs of building the infrastructure. So, you know, there's a whole range of ways that our government makes decisions in this mineral state, which is what we are, that we can challenge and should challenge. I like to say when I talk about mining that it's the story of making profits from loss. The profits go to a very small number of people, increasingly to the major investors in the world, the 1%. And the losses are sustained by indigenous people, by the environment, and by future generations. And those losses are enormous. And we just can't keep doing our economics in a way that excludes them. You have been listening to my interview with Joan Kuyek about her many years of activism, organizing, research, and advocacy against the harms caused by Canada's mining industry, and about her new book, Unearthing Justice, How to Protect Your Community from the Mining Industry. To learn more about the book, search for it on btlbooks.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 